Hello, welcome to Unprecedented Women, the podcast sharing incredible stories of women who paved their own way in the world of work. Stories that will inspire you to have the confidence to be visible, take action and to play big, because what's the best that can happen? I'm Jess Audsley, we're all pioneers and we are all unprecedented. Here we are. It's the last episode of Unprecedented Women. It has been an amazing season and I'm so incredibly grateful for all the conversations that I've had to have and to you as an audience for listening to me and my guests as well. And I really, truly hope that it has given you something through the 10 episodes that we've done. But we are here. It's the final one. And to top it all off with a bang, I have invited Leela Ainge. And Leela is a business psychologist. She's got 20 years of cross-industry consulting experience, and she helps people understand human behaviors and differences and how they contribute to success through a niche of coaching and consultancy. And Leela truly has a natural ability to identify nuance. And she combines curiosity and passion for learning to bring unique insights and perspective to client challenges. And I am a, a proud client of Leela's. <laughs> so I know what she does and I know that she does it very, very well. So welcome to the podcast, Leela. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Jess. It's great to be on your podcast. I've really enjoyed all of the episodes so far. Yes, you're a listener, which is fantastic. I'm very grateful. So Leela, tell us a little bit, wherever you want to start, really, about who you are, what you do and why you do it. Oh, wow. Shall we? Um, let's start with university. So <laughs> I, I actually was going to be a teacher. Really? Yep. I was all lined up to go to teacher training um, university in Sheffield. And about three days before the start of term, I changed my mind and went on a business and IT course instead. And part of the reason for doing that really was just that IT was taking off. I mean, this was 1997. Mm. So IT was really taking off. And I just want to set some context here. I didn't have a computer. <laughs> I'd not done business <laughs> studies at A-level, which is the UK kind of pre-university entry. And I'd taken business studies GCSE at night class because something about being in business just really appealed to me. And I wanted to kind of understand a little bit more about how businesses worked. So I was reading online about this new course that actually combined business and IT. And best of all, you didn't need to have qualifications in either of them to join this course because it was a new course. So I started this course not really knowing what I was going to go into. Um, did a business and IT course. And then when I graduated, I actually graduated with a H&D, so it wasn't a full degree. It was a very practical course. We did things like make website pages with HTML, wow. um, do presentations, um, do training documents. It was, a, you know, we, we went into organizations. We had lecturers who'd worked in industry. I think that was the key bit for me that really kind of set fire in my belly to work in business. So when I left, I went to work with a consultancy company and this consultancy company was really where my career started. I managed to blag my way onto a graduate scheme because I wasn't a technical graduate. And I just said to them, well, 
I know that you've got a graduate scheme coming up. I started work as there as a business analyst. And I said, but I want to go on the graduate scheme. They said, well, you need to have a 2-1 degree. Um, you need to have this experience and that experience. And I said, but you're doing an assessment centre. And they said, yes. Said, Can I do the assessment centre? And you just tell me if I'm not good enough. And so I did the assessment centre. And then I got a call because somebody had dropped out of the, of the graduate scheme. And I filled in the space. Wow. And that is probably a bit of a precursor to how my career has kind of taken shape because I've probably been in places more by pushing and a bit of luck than by being technically trained in the right things. And I've really kind of just followed my gut and and steered myself into opportunities. So I actually worked for a consultancy company for five years, got lots and lots of experience, learned a huge amount about the industry. I worked with big clients like Cable and Wireless, Westminster City Council, which is a huge council in London. And at the end of all of that, I thought, well, what do I want to do next? And I think I knew I didn't want to work for organisations for the rest of my career, but I knew that I wanted to be really, really general. So I'm very excited about lots of different things. I've always been interested in people and all of these consultancy gigs that I did, they were always technical based. We were putting in technical transformations, new systems. Um, Remember when call centres started, I put in the first government call centre. You know, that was one of my first big jobs. And so I was right on the forefront of all of this digital transformation. But it was the people element that I was really interested in. And actually, my managers would always put me and say, Leela, can you go and do the liaison with people? Can you ask them about their jobs? Can you really understand why they're, you know, reluctant to the change and they don't want to do what they want to do? Hmm. So I kind of carved a little bit of a niche for myself in the consultancy I was in, um, in being a change champion. And I really was interested in change and culture change and change models. So I did a little bit of training around that. And then we moved on to really looking more at change models and, and how they worked from a business efficiency perspective. So back in, you know, back in the year 2000 through to 2002 and three, that, that was essentially what I was doing. But I knew I wanted to do more. And then I'd look at other people and I'd look at the jobs they've got in terms of being in HR and the career paths they'd taken. And I'd look at people who were working in the creative industries and all the creative things they got to do around learning and development and training. And part of my role was picking up little bits of all of these types of trades and crafts and bringing them all together under the umbrella of consultancy. And everyone kept telling me to kind of, you know, niche into a specific area. So Leela, either stick with call centres or stick with this or stick with a particular technology. And I was very reluctant to do that because it just didn't really suit my personality. I like to do lots of different things. So I left the consultancy and I actually went and worked for a print company for a few years. (laughs) Um, Went to work for councils, worked for charities. And I've essentially just moved around lots of different industries. So it's really interesting that I've, I've kind of taken what I've needed from different industries to build up a real general knowledge of what it's like to be a consultant. But alongside that, I did my life coaching qualification before I was 30. And one of the reasons for this was at the time, um, I could see people getting coaching and I could think, I'm really interested in being a coach. I want to be a coach. And 
I did the life coaching qualification and you have to have so many hours under your belt and you have to be supervised and then you get your certificate and then you can take on clients. And I never took clients on because I continued to be employed, but that was kind of the burning kind of bit inside me that wanted to be a coach. So fast forward perhaps maybe five or ten years. It's a long time, actually, when you think about it. Um, I'd continued to do lots of freelance work, so I'd have ended up stopped being employed. And I'd moved from the north to the south as well. So I'd, I'd moved from, I'd gone to University of Manchester in the UK, and then I'd moved back to the Midlands to where my family are and where my husband Dave is. And one of the things that was really interesting there is that I, I decided not to be a full-time employee. I wanted to be a freelancer. I wanted to contract. And mm. it was really easy to contract in public sector at the time because there'd be lots of pockets of funding for short-term projects. And that really kind of gelled with me. I wanted to do that. So I ended up contracting and freelancing. So the real change, I suppose, and the trajectory that my career's gone in the last, I suppose, two and a half to three years is the one where I'm training to be a psychologist, you know. Yeah. And yeah. this came about because of the pandemic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I'd already been, you know, kind of qualified in certain coaching things. I've been coaching for a long time. Um doing lots of learning and development and I was really interested in psychology. I don't think I ever believed that I was probably the right person to go down a psychology kind of career path. And I was probably put off a little bit by the fact that it felt like it was niching, if you like. And this is Mm. a common theme with me. But I did a really good course at a local university and it was a women in leadership course. And what that did for me is that gave me the confidence to attack the academic side of becoming a psychologist. So I had to submit some papers and I was really nervous about writing at an academic level. I'd never done this. I mean, remember my HND course, I literally had to submit a web page <laughs> or Very do a presentation. Practical. Yeah. You know, give me a room full of hundreds of people. I'll stand up and talk. I am not bothered about that. Ask me to write, you know, maybe three or four paragraphs about a subject and I'll freeze you know it's not something I necessarily feel comfortable doing so that gave me a lot of confidence and it was really a discussion with a a mentor at the university um, where we were talking about my passions and about my experience in change management and the final project I'd done for them was all around management behaviors and dysfunction um, in public sector And really the psychology behind why teams work, why teams don't work, why individual personalities come into play. And they would said, why don't you consider doing a psychology course? And I said, well, I don't really want to go back to uni to do a a degree. And they said, oh, no, not a degree. Go and do a master's or a PhD. And I was like, well, I can't do that. (laughs) Um, And they said, well, why don't you send this final project into the course admissions team and and see what they say. So I had a conversation with the admissions team. We were like, wow, yeah, perfect, perfect match. And you'll cover all of this on the master's and it will give you the scientific underpinning. And so during the pandemic, I'd stopped one contract had finished, I think in the July, I'd got a kid off school for the whole summer holidays. We've got nowhere to go. And so during that summer holidays, I kind of did a bit more research and applied and started doing the master's in September. So that's been me for the last 18 months, really. And I finish it in a few months time. Um, But it's been fascinating because it's really, 
I suppose, enhanced my coaching um, career. It's enhanced my consulting, definitely. Um, but the thing that I'm most excited about is the fact that I can do real research and it can be helpful. So the research that I'm looking at at the moment and the research that I'll be doing in March is around female entrepreneurs, but it's looking at imposter syndrome, but not just, you know, female entrepreneurs that have imposter syndrome, but why that shows up and when it shows up. I'm really interested in life's big events, the big things that happen to us. So it could be moving house, it could be loss, it could be a career change. But I'm interested in how that impacts people with imposter syndrome um, when those big events happen, when they are an entrepreneur. There's very little out there about that. And I think we can help women a lot with the kind of services that we're providing. So I'm really excited to be doing research that's actually going to help my consultancy, it's going to help my clients in the future, and hopefully it's going to put more new information and resources out there to support people as they launch their own businesses and work through businesses and all the things that happen around them, right? Absolutely. I actually saw um, a post yesterday in a network group that I'm in, and it was somebody who had attended uh, an event in the Swedish political arena where they talked about female entrepreneurs and business owners. And she said, there's no such thing as female entrepreneurs. There's only entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And that is so provoking to me. Like, I understand that we need to like poke holes at the uh, preconceptions and, and get out of those kind of tracks that we are kind of going going in that we created for ourselves and we keep just like going down the same old track. I understand that. But to me, it's also very provoking when somebody says there's no, there's no female founders, there's just founders or whatever, because I, I, in my experience, there is a massive difference. The, The data, the research shows that there's a massive difference and imposter syndrome in, in the research that is available, not that there's, like you say, there's not a lot, but it, what is available, it shows that it is absolutely, undoubtedly, predominantly women who are affected by this. Um, and to me, then, is like, let's not pretend that it's, you know, all founders, that business owners that find themselves in these situations with these particular types of challenges, when that is, in fact, not true. And I don't want to go to extremes, but it's almost like saying, like, oh, there is no color. I don't see color. Like I don't, you know, I don't understand people who say that. It's like denying the fact that there is. And to me, it's like the challenges that rests within female founders and female entrepreneurialism is shown in the data. Like in Sweden, female business ownership has grown about a percent every year in the last 40 years so we have almost no growth it is at an absolute standstill and it's actually the the data from this year just passed shows that we are actually going backwards there's you know a retraction in the growth and to me that is like let's not pretend that you know we can play on the same field as the other gender because it's particularly hitting us harder. So is that something that you can see already in your your research? 
So, you know, it's so interesting that you use the analogy that you did around race, because when we think about women entrepreneurs, the thing that comes to mind is the stereotype, right? And so race is subject to stereotypes, and so are women in business. So we have what are called positive and negative stereotypes. A positive stereotype would be that woman is a strong leader and very flexible and creative. Okay, so it's meant to be positive, but actually we can see the the nuance in that conversation, which is, you know, creative and flexibility are associated with being female. And then you've got negative stereotypes, which might be um, the things that we know show up in boardrooms, like in um, venture capitalists are less likely to give money to all female boards. And they'll do that because they perceive them to be riskier. So there is systemic, you know, inequality in our world. So, yes, I kind of agree uh, in the in the sentiment that we need to have entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs is the title but whenever we're trying to solve problems whenever we're trying to look at why a cause has happened and what that effect is that's when we're coming down and going right so what is the makeup here what is the difference and you know as a psychologist I'm interested in differences I'm interested in why is that different what's the context you know um What's the interplay here between the environment and genetics and biology? You know, so we don't know, actually, we don't know sometimes what those differences are. We can't strip away the biology. We can't strip away the environment all the time. So we are served with what we've got. And you're quite right. We end up in this position where we end up with a lot of um, kind of support out there aimed at only women. But the last thing we want to do is be in an echo chamber. So it's really interesting that a lot of people are talking about this at the moment. We're talking about, you know, the way we talk about stereotypes. And I think it's interesting to think about how we use, you know, female entrepreneurs as a term and a stereotype, because are we perpetuating the fact that there's a difference? Mm. Um, and I would say that certainly from what I've heard on, on this podcast, in other episodes, you know, that's been that highlight is there because it, it's a lived experience. So as a researcher, the research I'm doing is very much lived experience. So I'm going to people, I'll be having long conversations and saying, tell me how this is for you. And then we'll be delving into this. Tell me what the context of that is, what what surrounds it. So when we start to ask the questions, that's when you get the richness. And interestingly, most countries, including the UK and probably Sweden, collect very little information about women business owners, full stop. And in the UK, 99% of businesses are small businesses. And a large proportion of those are managed by women. And yet we wouldn't know why that woman started that business. Has somebody started a business? And I'll say somebody and people now, if I can. Um, (laughs) But has somebody started a business out of necessity or is it out of drive and ambition? And there is a difference. Economically, the global entrepreneurship um, kind of reports that are done every year show that in different countries, different things are driving the reasons why we start businesses as people. And for women, sometimes starting a business is out of necessity rather than that entrepreneurial drive, if you like. So then we start to think about traits. So what is an entrepreneurial trait? If you were to look at the literature, 
you know, going back 20, 30, 40 years, a lot of the traits were associated with very masculine terms. Risk-taking. Yeah, it's a product, isn't it, of Mm. the people who were involved and the people who have got access and privilege. So all of these conversations come back to stereotypes. It comes back to bias, you know, unconscious and deliberate. And it's around, you know, those kind of discriminative acts that are happening. Mm. So we need to pay attention to what's happening. We need to listen to people who are having that lived experience of being a woman in business and we need to be thinking around what is it that's different? Can it be changed? Can it be equal? Is there equity out there? And what support and structures need to be in place? But certainly, there's also an argument that women shouldn't be pitted against men in the way that, oh, well, we'll try and bring women up to be exactly the same as a male entrepreneur would be. Because I suppose my question there and a lot of other people's is, who says that's the right way? Mm, that's that's kind of where my thinking is as well. I mean, I am interested in these questions on a personal level, but I also, as a business owner, obviously serve a lot of female founders, and I see a lot of the same things coming up. And then on top of that, I am in between countries. So one leg in Sweden, where I live, and the other one in the UK, where I used to live. And I can see based on the data that I've read about and the studies that I've seen and the research that is available, which is certainly limited. I believe that the slow growth in Sweden when it comes to women starting businesses needs to be addressed politically. So we need to find a better way for the social system to handle the fears that women have when it comes to starting businesses and and a lot around mindset as well, which is much harder to address. On the other side, I can see and believe the conclusions that I've drawn myself that in the UK, we do have more female-owned businesses, more businesses being started by women. Well, why? I believe it's because of necessity. I believe it's one of the reasons is because the UK does not provide a flexible lifestyle for mothers, flexible live and work. So what choice do you have if you go cap in hand to your employer and say, please, can I work part time because I have children now? And they say no, then you have no chance of you know doing that unless you leave and start your own business and create your own flexible work life balance. Whereas in the in Sweden, if we go to our employers and say, hey, I have a kid now, can I please work uh, part time? They say, of course you can. It's afforded to you by law. So we have nothing to say here as employers. This is, you know, this is nothing that they can can say. So by law, there, there has been created this flexible uh, situation for women, which I think that then if you weigh the two situations against each other in one I need to do this because I need to like not work full time and find a flexible lifestyle for me and my family. And on the other side, I don't need to start a business because I can get that flexibility otherwise. So I think there is certainly something there, at least, and that's very much my own kind of what I've read and seen and experienced. Oh, God, absolutely. I I think, you know, as a psychologist, one of the most um, challenging things is when we look at doing research and we look at the data that comes out is how generalizable is it you know how comparative are different situations so you know from an economic perspective political 
data from different countries. What works in one country won't necessarily work in another. In America, for example, um, you know, they don't have private, you know, they don't have a national healthcare system. So that drives a lot of policy and it drives a lot of decisions that are made about business. And in the UK, like you said, you know, there is, you know, the high cost of nursery fees, which you know, there's a suggestion that that has led to the number of women who freelance. Um, And we've got data on that. We've had data through the pandemic on the, you know, the negative impact that the pandemic had on working women in the UK. The government discriminated against some of them as well. That was, you know, found to be true. So we know that these things are happening. It's fact. We we can prove it. We can say that, Mm. that it's an inequality. But then if you look at another country, their pandemic experience, if if you're a female business owner, might have been very different. So we know that there are threads that are very similar. We know that the way in which gender roles appear for women and for children will set a precedent for many, many years to come. We know that the type of education that is offered to women, we know that the availability of it um, makes a massive difference as well. And I often wonder, you know, what if I'd not seen the advert for that business and IT course? Would I be even doing the job I'm doing right now? Probably not. So, all of these things come in together. But as a psychologist, you, you're really trying to say, you know, what are the differences here and why is that? Well, there is such a need for role models, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation in this podcast, because I truly believe that when you, if you can see it, you can believe it. If you can see that other people are doing it or your parents are doing it, then you believe that it's available for you. Um, and then you don't actually need to be a risk-taking person. You don't build up those blocks because you're like, it becomes natural to you. We can see this with, with entrepreneurial families or families that have doctors or dentists or whatever have you, teachers. It becomes as a child, something that you see and therefore it becomes natural to you. Um, And it also my hope that my children will see that running businesses and now it happens that both me and my husband do it. So they've never seen us go to an office. They've only seen me do it, but never, never Jamie, uh, because he's been running his own business since since my eldest son was born. And they, I I think that they would find it weird (laughs) if we started to go into an office and be like, what is that? Like, what, you have to go somewhere and do work? Is this something you do? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is very strange, you know. So, but isn't there a correlation between when we can see role models and people paving the way to a belief that we can actually do it, purely psychologically speaking. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the key tenant behind imposter phenomenon. So that key paper and that, you know, just to draw attention to this, 1979 was the year after I was born and I'm 43 now. 43 years ago, two female researchers said, hey, we've got a problem with role models here. And this lack of visible role models in business, in boardrooms, is leading to something that we're going to call imposter phenomenon. Mm. So there were other things, but that is a key thing. And it still prevails. It's still there. And we know that we need to do more about it. The interesting thing is, as we we start to understand more about stereotypes and we understand about more about how people conform and mimic and suppress who they are yeah. in workplaces. You know, you you mentioned right at the beginning. You know, um, imposter phenomenon might be something that impacts women more than men, and historically, yes, but 
more so we're seeing lots of different people are coming forward and going, hey, I, I get this. I get imposter phenomenon. That's me. And these people don't see themselves represented. So I'm looking at the neurodiverse community. I'm looking at the LGBT community. I'm looking mm. at black and ethnic minorities, or I should say majorities, um, different communities are all saying, hey, I don't see me here. And mm. we know that marginalization is contributing to that. So when we start to unpick imposter phenomenon, the social psychologist in me is saying, actually, am I looking at a social phenomenon here that impacts people when they don't see role models? And am I actually talking about you know, um, inequity? Am I talking about um, lack of diversity? And that is easier to understand. It makes more sense than it just being something that's against one person. But going back to 1979, certainly the thing that wasn't there inside 1979, um, and I've seen this in police stations, so I've worked with quite a lot of police forces. In the older police stations, you would go into certain branches and there would be no female loos because those police stations were designed for men and you know they were re- female loos were retrospectively put in so you see this in quite a lot of the older buildings in the UK I worked in a print factory and the print factory had no female toilets on the shop floor for a long time you know these things happen so if you think about women were going into the workplace it literally was a world that was not designed or created for them mm. and you know, we see this pop up all over the place for women in science, in the way drugs are developed. You know, we test on males, white male students, and then you're missing out all of these different people. So back in 1979, the thing that was very different back then was that the world of work just never contained women. So when they were brought into it, no wonder they felt like an imposter. I think now that is more nuanced. It's more nuanced because we know that that imposter has been a ripple effect as we are more diverse and as more people are allowed and enabled to be themselves because of positive cultures. We're now starting to say, hey, but is it designed for for me you know what what's the cultural structure I know you've already had Christina on the podcast but she I think this is where she really gets into it in saying you know where's the psychological safety to be who you are and to be fully you and present in an organization so all of these things come into imposter phenomenon that's why it's such a a grand topic to kind of research it's very complex I feel like in in like in the conversations that are happening in society we've come further than we have in real life because in real life I still hear stories I I have a friend who gave up a career as a police officer due to toxic workplace it wasn't gender specific but it was about not being allowed to be who you are among other things and I feel like we know these things we know better but yet why doesn't it look better Why isn't our society more diverse? Why aren't we doing more? And that is a frustration in me because I, I, we know the problems. We know where the solutions might lie and the actions we need to take to get there, yet it's so incredibly slow. I mean, I look at myself and I think, yes, I left employment because I did not have the freedom to be who I wanted to be. And in my case, it was particularly a male toxic culture, work culture that I was in. But... I could have been a person of colour in a predominantly white work culture where there was no 
way for me to go and so on and so forth. So the reason doesn't actually matter. It, there could be different kinds of reasons, but the result is the same. And this is what I would call a, a reality perception gap. So we know that the reality is is there, but where's the self-awareness? So, and you see this, you see this when um, it shows up with stereotypes, you see it when it shows up as discrimination, you see it as when you see um, racism, people will think they are not part of the problem. We think we're not part of the problem because we don't want to believe it. You know, we, we want to be the good person. So it's very easy to be part of something and to know what is wrong, but not be in a, a position of that self-awareness to realise what small actions we can take to start changing things. It's very easy to say, you know, just look at boardrooms, you know, the majority men in some countries and there's still a gender imbalance and women are paid less. And these are all part of the problems and still they're, you know, kind of sorted out. We're not going to get the solutions. But we know that there are loads of lots of other small things that we can start doing as well. The really interesting thing for me is around, you know, how we give voice to people so that they can constructively call behaviour out, toxic behaviour. And we can give voice to people by creating safe workplaces. But safe workplaces require a lot of people to do the work around thinking and and kind of acknowledging what behaviours they've got that aren't safe. There'll be lots of learning for people. You know, I sit on quite a number of committees and boards. Some of them are voluntary. And in the UK, you know, our schools have voluntary governing boards, our charities that provide food banks, which is a very much needed service at the moment, especially during winter, are volunteer led. And a lot of these places have governance, but not always the right level of skill or ability on their boards either. So we start to see how easy it is for the right behaviours not to be happening. It's very easy to kind of think, oh, right, so business needs to get this right and private businesses need to, you know, make sure they're employing equitable numbers of men and women and giving voice to them, getting the right people for the job and got the right things in place. But actually, there's so much in there structurally that that can be changed and tackled that we need to think about, you know, what do we as an individual do? How can we make a difference? And with my coaching hat on, I'd be going, so what What can I do? What can I do? What one small thing can I keep doing that is different? And for me, it would always be encouraging people to have a voice. It would always be encouraging safe practice in meetings. It would be being compassionate. You know, there's lots of behaviours that we can be ourselves to set good role modelling, which is not just for, there for people who want to be a woman in business like me, but I'm hoping I'm a role model for anyone, you know, male, female, whoever. Mm. I think one thing that I discovered, though, is that a large part of the problem is that privilege is very hard to discover when you're privileged. Mm. So when you're privileged, and I try to challenge myself all the time in all manner of situations, when I find things difficult, I try to think about, well, what would this be like for me if I was a person of colour, if I was a person with a disability? What would this be like for me then? You know, questioning the situation, not from my own perspective, but from the perspectives of, of others so that I can, in a sense, you know, represent them. But I found that I was working in a very toxic male work environment full of privileged white men who who said, looked at me and were like, what do you mean inequality? That's ridiculous. This is a 
an equal workplace. You're just a shouty woman who's being really annoying, creating a problem where there isn't none. And it's, that's hard (laughs) because it's like literally holding up a mirror to somebody and going, can you see what it is that is happening? And they go, there is not a problem. So we have, you know, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I am, I would say I'm probably right at the start of my journey on, you know, discovering what, I need to do around privilege you know I'm a very privileged person I've got a house you know a lot of people don't have a roof over their head um and I've got a family and I've got connections and I've got friendship and I got to go to university and I've got an opportunity to do further education there's so much privilege in there that you just think is you know yours and and you take for granted so I'm definitely one of those people who's very much at the start of that journey of understanding and unpacking it a little bit and going right okay I want to create something good for my own family moving forward but how do I then ensure that that is equitable you know for a good world how how do I be a good person in the future but when you're in those situations where you are that person who can see it and other people can't it just creates frustration it creates frustration because you're not able to you know marry up what we said there in terms of the reality and the perceptions that you have so you know the choices that we have there are to make difficult decisions and I know that your difficult decision was to to move on we were not going to win every single battle but actually the the very nature of being in that situation has created some really great opportunities for you in hindsight. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not um, it's not something that I, I it's the best thing that ever happened to me, to be honest with you. <laughs> and I always say this as well. And I apply this to all manner of situations. It's like if things were just are just a little bit bad, then it doesn't kick us into action. But when they are really bad, then you do things and take brave decisions and take action in a way that you might not otherwise have done. So I always flip it over and do this reframing of gratitude and saying, I'm grateful for the hard times. I'm grateful for the difficulties. I'm grateful for the frustration because all of those things led me to where I am today. It opened my eyes. But when you're there and you're trying to explain to a person who is used to walking into a boardroom, and being heard, who is used to walking into a boardroom and being respected, who is used to all of these things, not realising that that is not the case for everybody. I think think this is where 20 years of being a management consultant and predominantly working with men who are senior (laughs) to me, I get it, I get it, you know. In suits. there (laughs) There have been a tremendous amount of situations where I've gone into organizations as a management consultant you are not the most loved person in an organization you walk in you're there to judge assess evaluate you know essentially you're there to make things work a bit more efficiently which means stripping things out and cutting costs um I imagine that would make people fearful you know absolutely you've already put people into a really uncomfortable place so when we're talking about culture um it doesn't matter how great the culture is of the organization you're moving into as a management consultant your very presence there 
upsets the equilibrium, right? So people move into safety behaviours, people move into uncertainty, people do things they wouldn't ordinarily do. Um, If you've ever had any experience of being assessed either for a coaching um, session or, you know, for an exam, which is very practical, it's the same kind of thing that can happen. We put spotlights on people and you get the worst of behaviours because people go to extremes. I have developed, I suppose, a way of working with people who are defensive, which has been to be very curious about it because I don't know what's going on for them. I don't know what's going on in their decision making. And actually, there's a lot of self-justification that goes on in our own heads. And we might end up talking about this in terms of ghosting, actually. It's really relevant in terms of rejection. But when we are making decisions in our own heads we verbalize a lot less than we're thinking ourselves and it's really interesting and useful to think about that when you're faced with somebody who is behaving in a certain way I can only sit there and think wow there must be a lot going on in your head at the moment I don't know what's causing this I don't know what you know upbringing you had I don't know how secure you are in your relationships I don't know what kind of attachments you have to people this organization I don't know what kind of financial concerns you've got so I'll always be very curious and go do you know it's probably not about me and that allows me to ask questions it allows me to kind of give people voice and it all comes back to that for me saying well what voice has this person got what do they need to tell me in order for me to have a useful conversation with them and there will often be almost like a breakthrough moment it sounds quite easy for me to say this I've been doing it for 20 years and I'm a coach as well but in a conversation with someone there'll be a breakthrough where there'll be just like one little light bulb moment for me where I go aha okay, you mentioned that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And usually we're able to work on that. But in boardrooms, you know, I still experience a lot of discrimination. And um, very recently, I was on a board, a 66% women made up board. And there's been a mass exodus of women off that board. And, and, you know, I'll be stepping down next year as well. And we're recognising that we're still not getting things right, that women aren't heard and voices aren't always heard. And some of those behaviours aren't aren't great. And exactly like you, you know, there's a time to sit and fight and be an activist and to try and hold up a mirror or to be you know, curious and compassionate and to have the conversations. There's also time to walk away, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm here for me and I need to conserve my energy. So, you know, I, I get both sides. I'm not saying it's a, an ideal place to be at all. It's, it's a very exhausting place to be as a woman in business. It's also a, a thing that you get to that point where you're like, you're making that decision to start a business. That's where we are now. We said, well, this is not for me, regardless of whatever got you to that point, then we tap into the fears, which is something I see again and again when I talk to new uh, female business owners is, you know, can I really do this? What if it doesn't work? Do I need another certificate, another diploma? And once you're in business, I mean, I'm not a seasoned business owner. I've been in business for three years, but I've learned so much in these three years that that beginning phase to me is so much about mindset. And mindset continues to be something that is incredibly important in business. So it's not, mindset was always an interest of mine and always very important in my life in general, but it has never been more important 
than from the point of deciding to start a business and going forward. Because there is so much that keeps coming back to mindset when you run a business. It's, you know, daring greatly. It's about getting out of your comfort zone into that growth zone and expanding. It's about what we see for ourselves, what the possibilities are, how we set our own limits. And it's about handling rejection. So talk us through that a little bit, because I know that those are kind of like the blocks and the and the things that people not only experience when they start a business, but also continuously as we run our businesses. So how can we... How can we be our best selves as business owners and address these things? Now, how can we work on our mindset? I know it's a really big question, but you're good at big questions. <laughs> Thank you. So mindset's huge, but let's start with the basics. You know, a mindset's about your brain. Your brain's there predominantly to send messages to your body and it's involved in neurotransmission. And that neurotransmission is also doing things like helping decision-making. And decision-making, I mean, we make about 35 thousand decisions a day so you have to do some of those things automatically otherwise you'd never get anywhere and that's where mindset has its biggest pitfall you know it's one of the greatest advantages of our brain is it allows us to do things on autopilot and it's also one of the biggest disadvantages because it does things on autopilot so it will autopilot tell you this is a scary thing and when we've experienced fear before then we've behaved in this way and that's a safety behavior so let's do it again even if it's not helpful It will also do things like, oh, this feels like this situation when I sat in a boardroom and it was really scary. So I'm just going to stop getting anxious about this two weeks in advance. You know, it will trick us into having unhealthy mindsets. So one of the things I will do with clients is start to understand, you know, what is the trigger for the mindset and what kind of mindsets do we actually have? The first question I always ask about goal setting is, do you believe you can do this? Because if you don't believe you can do it, let's work on those things that are stopping you or holding you back. That little bit of doubt is coming from a really useful place. That's your brain going, here's my doubt. Okay, so let's trace back. Where's that doubt starting from? You know, why is that there? Perhaps it is a childhood experience where when you put yourself forward to do something, the cool kids in the playground went, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, that that's cropped up in sessions for me. It's been something as simple as that. And these narratives stick with us for a very long time. So if you think about behaviours becoming automatic, you think about narratives that sit in your head. These are all things that form our mindset. And so we have this thing called um, the concept of a fixed and a growth mindset. That's Carol Dweck's work. You know, it's the reason why you can have two people sat down doing a maths test. One of them will go, brilliant. I can't wait to try and figure and solve out this problem. And the other person's going, oh, my God, I'm not even going to attempt it. It looks scary. So we know that these differences happen even when there doesn't even appear to be a difference on paper between the two individuals. And we've proved this through twin studies. So, I mean, you're the you know, proud mum of twins as well. And you'll see that there are differences in personality and in traits. So we know that there's a lot going on in that brain of ours, which is making us a little bit different and approach situations in different ways. So our mindset does those markers. It has those things that sets us up. So you talked about rejection and 
I mean, we've been having really interesting conversations about rejection recently because I've been looking at rejection as a social phenomenon in terms of ghosting. And rejection is one of those really interesting things because rejection's been with us since, I suppose, the very early evolution of man. So if you think about um, the fact that we're very social people, creatures, um, we're always meant to be as part of a group or a society, certainly in the societies that we know about. And one of the things that has happened, you know, for centuries is, you know, groups coming together and they can also, you know, cast people out Mm. and it's a social rejection. So this has been around for centuries. It's not a new thing. And that social rejection historically may mean death, like not surviving. Completely, completely. And this this is when we start unpacking it, we go, there's there's understandably this is what we fear because in our, it's in our dna not to go outside the box not go outside the realms of what is socially acceptable because we don't know if we're going to survive and so many women through history have also been reliant on men for their survival and still are in some parts of the world yeah absolutely you know it wasn't until i think 1973 that you didn't have a have to have a male co-signee on a mortgage in the US. So wow. before 1973, <laughs> you had to have a man sign. Yeah. You couldn't buy property for yourself. That is in within my lifetime. I mean, that is just shocking. So we're very shocking. dependent on the people that we form we our social connections with. Yeah. And, you know, we're reliant on them, you know, historically for kind of like fire, food, warmth, all of that kind of stuff. It built, it, you know, it starts to build into our hierarchy of needs. Mm. So if you think about, you know, there's that deep seated fear of being cast out or not being part of that group. And one of the reasons then that we see it show up on social media is that social media is just an extension of our social connections and worlds. Now, it means different things say that again because that is so interesting (laughs) okay that is true and i hope that everybody hears that that social media is not a separate world it's an extension extension of of who we are and i always keep saying this when it comes to how people go well how should i behave on social media i'm like well how do you behave in real life how do you network in real life do you walk up to somebody and stick your business card in their face and go you should buy from me no, you don't. You create relationships. And I think this is why it can be quite exhausting for some people to show up on social media yeah. if they're not themselves. It can be exhausting if um, you're only giving a little bit of yourself as well and holding stuff back. I mean, I'm fairly private on social media on my business account. And, you know, I would love to just be me and to just like do everything as me. But I'm thinking about my family and my privacy as well. So, you know, I do hold back. And that does cause um, exhaustion, a cognitive exhaustion because you're thinking about that so social media is different to real life it's different in many ways but I like to think of it as an extension because it is an extension of how we behave in real life in terms of um, the things that come with us in our mindset our baggage if you like um, our attachments and, and how we approach you know conflict and avoidance but also of our values don't you think like yeah we're not we're not fundamentally changing our values as human beings existing in the real world if you will to our values in the in the social media extension you know and yeah and yes it's really interesting because I suppose when Facebook launched was it around 90 2007 wasn't it so around 2007 when Facebook launched 
I saw a couple of papers on this and it fascinated me that actually they they launched Facebook and it created a bit of an online culture. So if you think about it, there was suddenly this merging of who we are in real life and this merging of this online culture that's been laid out for us. And I think what we're starting to see and certainly what I'm starting to see in terms of the bigger platforms is there's more recognition that people want to be very individual within that social media platform. And so we've learned a lot, haven't we, over the last 10, 20 years around how to be us on social and how that sells, how it influences, how, you know, it really impacts a lot of the mindset stuff as well. So it is a really fascinating thing. But the whole rejection thing on social media is painful. And it's painful because it's using exactly the same neural pathways in our brain when we are socially excluded from something as if we have hurt our knee. And the next big thing here is that social rejection, the pain associated with it can be recalled. Now, I had um, particularly bad neuralgia one year, which is like a really horrible face pain and tooth pain. And it was so bad, I had to go to hospital to get treatment, right? That's how bad it was. I can't really recall or relive that pain. I can't recall it in any useful way other than to know how many painkillers it took to actually dent it. Yeah. So I can use another measure to give myself an evaluation post the event of what that was like. Now, if you ask me about the emotional pain I felt when my son was born and he was on the baby unit and I was on the ward because he had some heart things to, that they had to kind of work with, I can relive that in a, in a heartbeat, in an absolute heartbeat. So much so that this week my son's been quite poorly and, and it came flooding back to me and I had to mm. like sit with it for a moment and go, this is what's happening. I'm okay here. I've been through this before. Mm. But those social moments, those social um, things that happen to us and that social pain is something that we can relive versus a physical pain we can't. So even though it's using the same neural pathways, that it shows up in different ways. It's fascinating. I yep. never, never thought of it that way. Honestly, I've never thought of it. That is that is like, oh, there goes the mic drop. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's incredible. As you're telling this story, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, right, I was in hospital with what ended up being an infection of the blood. So it started out as I was in hospital for like a week and they couldn't, the doctors, they couldn't get, I'm allergic to penicillin and they couldn't get this infection under control. And it Mm. was in my entire body and they were worried. And I could see that they were worried because humans can't hide their true feelings. Even if they are doctors (laughs) with a good bedside manner, you can see that they're worried. You can feel that they're worried and everybody was worried. And I was worried by extension, but I can't recall the pain I can't recall Mm -hmm. the physical I knew I knew what was happening to me I know I was lying there shaking I knew it was bad and I was I was screaming it was so painful until they started giving me morphine but I can't feel the physical pain but when I think of rejection and we can go there that's absolutely okay in a minute but I can actually I can I'm right there like that I can just so feel it. the reason the reason for this is that if we go back way back when centuries back and being excluded you said 
right at the beginning, being excluded from a social group could lead to death. So yeah. the reason that social exclusion is so painful to us, this is the theory, is that it needs to bring us that fear and it needs to make us feel like that as a warning. It's just an early warning sig- signal. If you start to feel excluded, the idea in the theory is that you then start to modify and change your behaviour to avoid being excluded at all costs. So it's literally life or death. It's survival, in a sense. Yeah, Yeah. potentially. Although, interestingly, one of the things that happens when we experience rejection can be aggression. And if you fight a potential exclusion situation with aggression, I mean, you're just going to get completely excluded, right? So there's nuances there. Mm. But the really interesting thing with that pain pathway is, and the way that our brain works, is that you can actually treat emotional pain with paracetamol. So there was a study done in America, and they call it Tylenol, don't they, in in America? Yeah. And uh, paracetamol is shown to be effective when you've got an emotional pain. So, you know, there you go. Wow. Wow. It's fascinating. I mean, the brain is amazing anyway, but... Yeah, and and the fact that we know so little about it, that that Mm. always... Always. Yeah, I mean, I think we have this perception that there are certain parts of our brain that do certain things. And it isn't, you know, it's more complicated than that. that our brain works as a system. So different things are doing different things, at, you know, very different times. And they work together. And, you know, different parts of our brain are all involved in memory, not just one part. So we're, we're discovering new stuff all of the time. I, I still need a T-shirt that says "You are not your thoughts," because that's like one of my life lessons: is that that we aren't. You know, the things that we don't question it either. We just go into it and we don't dissect it. That's why I find it so fascinating talking to you because your knowledge goes so deep, and it just creates this level of understanding of why we behave the way that we mm. do. And I love un- unpicking this. So touching on the on the on the very sort of modern term of ghosting, mm. which the ghosting and gaslighting and narcissism and sociopathy were like not things that we talked about 10 years ago but now they are very much part of our vocabulary and that's thanks to a lot of brilliant people who have brought this up to the surface and we need words and vocabulary to describe the things that are happening Mm. to us the people that are doing it might not really want to be described that way but we need a way of explaining what is what is happening so recently we yeah. talked a bit about ghosting T- tell me more about the psychology of ghosting so ghosting i mean essentially it's avoidance it's avoidance of conflict and mm. it's not wanting to get into conflict so that's one area of it then you could say it's attachment and there's you know the the biggest theory out there on attachment is bulby's attachment theory attachment theory really says that um as a child if we've got safe and secure connections and relationships that that supports us and you know nurtures us um as an adult it evolves to become whether we are anxious and avoidant with relationships so not anxious or avoidant but either one or the other and both, you know, um, the scales there. And certainly, if you're an anxious person, then you could be anxious with everybody who you meet, or you could just be anxious with certain personalities. So there's so much in there in terms of depth. But broadly speaking, we're looking at, you know, attachment being an element of this and avoidance being an element. And then interestingly, 
there's um, a concept which is known as the Zynarch effect. And the Zynarch effect is really our ability, our brain's natural ability to keep something in the forefront of our mind. I think one of the single-handed, most infuriating things about being ghosted or excluded is that unfinished business. It's unfinished yeah, business. Yeah, lack of closure. There's lack of closure there. It can drive you absolutely mad. And, you know, Mm. that is the thing I think that people find most hard to deal with because it's it's not something you can necessarily control. So the Zynarch effect, there was um, a Russian psychologist, female, and she noticed this because in restaurants, obviously waiters have to take lots of orders. And before um, customers were paying, they could recite back what each table had ordered before the bill was paid. Now, when the customer has paid and left, so finished, um, that waiter was able to discard that information and Mm. recall it less. So we know that this phenomenon exists because it's probably a way of us keeping information that we need to keep because it's important at the front of our mind because it's unfinished business. So that's something that sits in our brain. So I actually think ghosting is probably a combination of lots of psychological things. Mm. Um, But those three things feel like they're most important to me. One, the conflict and the avoidance, I think is important for understanding that it perhaps isn't about you. The um, attachment thing is probably thinking about what each person brings to that relationship and why we might have got where we are. And the third thing is around helping you to deal with it and move on. So once you can recognize, actually, I need to close the loop on this, it's been able to reframe. And, you know, we talk about this a lot, don't we, in terms of helping to reframe and create new narratives can help us forward. You know, we can't always resolve every single um, argument we have. We can't always resolve every single um situation in life but we can you know find ways to reframe things to allow ourselves to close something mentally to move forward so all of these things kind of sit there but the interesting thing for me is then in terms of the person who's doing the ghosting you know there might be a perception if you're the one who's been ghosted and you're thinking how dare they how can they do this that's so you know unethical or it's not I don't have those values and how would they do that you know, this indignation would come out. And I just want to step that back a bit, because when we're doing that self-justification thing in our head, remember, I talked about this earlier, and I said, when we are thinking something through, we verbalise probably a small percentage of it. So I want you to consider if you're ghosted in the future, that the person who's ghosting you is having probably quite a few conversations in their own head, and they're self-justifying what they're doing, and they're going down a decision-making pathway. So what might be happening from a psychological perspective there is there's an illusion of progress. They're dealing with a problem. They're working through it. It's very logical. And so maybe this isn't as emotional. It's more of a it's a response to dealing with a challenge that they've got. Now that Mm. challenge could be something that has been triggered, you know, for decades ago. There could be something in that relationship that they're not not comfortable with that they want to avoid, or it could be something just very relevant and recent. Perhaps the person who they're ghosting, um, you know, did something they didn't like it, but they didn't want to deal with it or they didn't want to confront it or they weren't able to, you know, we're all very busy. So, there will always be reasons, but we probably wouldn't know them. Mm. So I think all of these things are just useful. It's not to give anybody an excuse. It's not to let behaviour off, poor behaviour. But it's certainly helpful as a psychologist. You just want to kind of go, okay, I'm going to be curious. What's happening for that person? What might have happened here? How did we get there? 
And there was a really useful conversation in real work this week, actually. Um, We had somebody in Ashanti who was talking to us about having difficult conversations and something she said really resonated with me. And I was thinking, how do we signal to people that they can have difficult conversations with us? Because actually, if we're thinking about the fact that social media is an extension of who we are and the fact that we might be spending more time in this extended world, then having the ability to signal that we're okay to have difficult conversations to people creates what Christina might call that psychological safe place. Mm. So I'm really interested in that and I'll probably go and research it a bit more. But that that for me is just very interesting. But obviously the whole ghosting experience can lead to rejection and rejection is a big old topic and I've got stuff on there if you want to talk about that too. <laughs> well, <laughs> listen, I, what, I, what is popping up in my head as we're talking about this is my own kind of experience of ghosting slash rejection. And it's it's a big one because it's not about like somebody didn't, you know, DM me back on Instagram. It's uh, my best friend who was a friend from high school. We had kind of um, developed our friendship across the years since graduation from high school and ended up living um, in the same place at the same time of a very close friends up until the point that I got married because around the time that I got married, I also got pregnant. So what happened is that the friendship was alive and well over the course of decades until I had a baby. And we, I tried to keep, I think we both tried to keep the friendship going uh, up until a certain point. And I remember like the last time I heard from her was when she said, I sent her a message um, and she said, I'm on the bus now, but I'll call you back later. That was 12 years ago. And I've never heard from her since. Wow. Wow. And she was my best friend. Um, so that kind of ghosting is very difficult to deal with. And talking from a non-psychological perspective with somebody who's actually experienced that is that it is very hard to get closure. And it is the lack of closure that was always grinding me. And also the constant questioning of what did I do wrong? What did I do to cause this? And how could I have done it differently and whatever? And um, yeah, decades of seeking that closure, seeking the understanding of what really went wrong until another friend, a mutual friend of ours, also had a baby and got the same treatment, more or less. And that was closure for me because then it was like recognizing that situation, unpicking it and going, you know what? It is not you, it's completely her. And let me not take something that so completely belongs to somebody else. She clearly doesn't want to be friends with me. She doesn't seem to like children. She doesn't want to be around people who have children and children seem to be a deal breaker in a friendship. Okay, that's it then. I have children. I cannot undo that, nor would I want to. So here is where the parts separate. And that is okay. So that is such a brilliant illustration. I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I hear you, that ability to have the closure, the fact that it took that realisation that it wasn't you, you had to have that confirmed or validated externally is such a common thing when this comes up in conversations and you know you won't be surprised to hear you're not the first kind of coaching client I've had who's had 
a friendship that's ended in that way, it's relatively common. So there's a bit of a checklist that I think is interesting to think about when we have friendships that end and not just on, on social. And I want you to see if any of these might resonate for you. And then right at the end, there's, there is something about that specific, unique situation, which has just come to mind, which I'll share with you. But the first one is to think about, you know, is this actually rejection? So this can be helpful when um, the rejection isn't around a person. It could be around a job or an opportunity. So is this rejection or is it just a not not right now? And sometimes with friendships, it can be a perhaps this isn't a right now thing. And if you can frame it as we're not friends at the moment because this can't happen right now, that can help. Also, with things like failed job opportunities, you can say, well, it's not a rejection. It just wasn't the right thing right now. So there's those kinds of things that can help in our first bit of the checklist when we're starting to process this. The second thing is that Perhaps this has just created a very uncertain situation for you. And when we are ghosted or when we lose a friendship or when something happens um, that results in that rejection, perhaps the uncertainty of it is the thing that we're battling most to try and resolve. You know, it creates a little bit of incongruence in our world. We had stability. We knew what things were. We knew what those rules were. We knew what our values were. We thought we knew what the other person's values were. So can you resolve the uncertainty? Can you just, you know, rethink through that? Can you kind of say, okay, so here's what I know I'm certain about. And here's what's going to happen in the immediate future. So I have other friendships. I'm certain about that. And um, that, that can help too. So that's the second one on the list. The third thing is around how connected are you? How connected are you in yourself? So um, we like to call this in terms of a gut experience. So that gut feel. Um, have you got a gut feel about this? And is your gut feel connected to how your behaviour is being exhibited? So are you internalising this distress or are you externalising it? And that can be interesting to think about because when you're going through the rejection, if you're not externalising stuff in a healthy way or if you're only internalising, then that's going to prevent you from moving forward as well, right? So they're really interesting things to think about. But I'd also then start to think around, well, what labels am I using around this rejection? And this also helps you to be connected with yourself. So what is the actual emotion you're feeling? So I was thinking earlier in terms of rejection that actually we've talked about and I've noted down some words that you've used. You know, there's loss, there's pain, there's sadness, there's uncertainty and, um, you know, that we can be scared sometimes as well. Um so if you think about what some of those labels are, actually, those words are very different to the word of rejection. So I would be encouraging people to think about what label specifically is really jarring for me. Which bit of this do I want to deal with? So that can help as well. And then the final thing is where's your focus? Now, this is where I would say that neurodiversity comes in quite a lot because when we have challenges, then if your focus is you know, different. So um, what we would tend to see here is that say if somebody has ADHD or autism, there could be a tendency to think that it is all your fault and to maybe have 
that sense of falling short. So we know things like imposter phenomenon impact people with um, ADHD and autism differently as well. And that sense of falling short can really be triggered. And that is something that is linked to executive function. So we know that there might be for other people, um, if you know, especially if you're neurodiverse, rejection can be acutely sensitive. And there's actually something called uh, rejection sensitive dysphoria that can kick in and if you think rejection is hard and painful this is another level right so this is something that you know there's some big studies you know not so long ago that are starting to really look into this phenomenon and how that shows up for people so even there you can see there's probably four or five things in my checklist where I'd be going through if I had a client in front of me saying right I've been ghosted I'm in the middle of rejection it hurts like hell what do I do how do I work through this I'd be going right so let's maybe step through some of these things here. What can we do on our side? Because we can't control that other person. We don't know. You might not get closure from them. But what can we do and look at from your perspective to kind of close that loop? And it comes back to, if you think about attachment theory, it's thinking about all the close relationships and friendships you do have. It's validating that you are a good person and a good friend to be it's looking at you know closing the loop on the unfinished business it's labeling things it's really attending to the emotion that, that you feel as well but rejection is a part of the human existence you know mm. um i find ways of reframing it because immediately when when something happens i personally tend to i know people are different but i tend to go what did i do wrong Mm. You know, and that I've learned throughout the years to not go to that place, but to look at the situation in a different way and break it down the way that you've broken it down for us today. Look at it from different angles, be curious about it and say, the truth is, we know so little about other people and their inner workings. I love that you always say be curious about things, because I think that that serves us so well in terms of like looking at things from different situations and I think that if anything this conversation is teaching me that we need to step aside from literally our own thinking our own heads and look at things really turn them around and look at them mm -hmm. from different kinds of angles from different kinds of situations even when we're hurt mm, especially when we're hurt <laughs> even when we're hurting and we're like in this explosion of emotions to stop and be like wait a minute, do I own this or is this somebody else's shit that I'm not trying to handle? Do you know what I mean? Like to just kind of not be so quick in, mm -hmm. in taking things on. Because I think we do that a lot. And I think that I see that as a fairly female trait that we're, yes, we're caregivers, but we also take on other people quite a lot. You know, they did something, it must be my fault. They didn't want my business this time. I feel rejected by that. It must be something. What did I do wrong? What can I do better next time? Mm. And um, I find that very interesting because I was listening to, to the news yesterday and the Finnish government have spent 10 billion euros on their largest, essentially arms deal. It's not arms. It's, it's you know, fighter planes. And a Swedish company... Uh, Saab, SAS Group, and there are these, you know, attack planes were in, you know, in the running. There were four companies in the running. And this is rejection on a 10 billion euro scale. I mean, this is big time rejection, right? Um, and the, the CEO was talking about it. And he immediately said, we're obviously we're disappointed we didn't get this deal. 
Finland is still, you know, our friends are our uh, allies, and we will obviously, you know, always keep it that way. But we ha- will have to walk away and look at what we did and do it better. And I wanted to shout at the radio in the car and go, it's not your fault, mate. (laughs) (laughs) They made a decision. They looked and they they went with Lockheed Martin, you know, which is known as the best fighter plane in the world. And it's like, it's not your fault, mate. It's not you. It's them. (laughs) They made a decision based on what they knew to be the best product. And you know, I, I just looked at that and took it into my own kind of career as a business. It's like, it's not losing if you're losing out to somebody who might be just sharper that one time, you know, maybe you'll be sharper the next time. So it's reframing that rejection into, I'll get the business next time, or I'll get it from somebody else. The thing that comes to mind to me is that, you know, nine times out of 10, probably it isn't about you. Um, If you've got the opportunity to kind of explore with a provider or a client or, you know, a friend, what are the challenges? I think that's the rich place where things can really happen. But also, you know, if you're thinking about um, rejection and how we deal and cope and move on from rejection, one of those other things that you could be thinking about is that, perception of loss when you've got one egg in your basket right so if you've got one close friend losing that one close friend is going to be a severe heartache compared to losing one friendship in a group of close friendships right so you can always go to your other friendships to validate who you are as a person and to help you if you are bidding for many pieces of work and you lose the one that comes in first then you can Mm. go that is rubbish. It hurts. I need to do some work. I need to find out why. And perhaps it isn't me. And that's okay, too. But I've also got other opportunities in the bag. And I think that's a good lesson for life, isn't it? The good lesson for life is look at what else you have as well. And also try and create, create those um, kind of scenes where you're not reliant on just one thing. In business, that is just from the management consultant side of me, is wherever I see a single source of failure, that's where I'm advising a client to bolster, put support in, put resilience in, and it it works for systems and it works for people. I, as a business owner, all on my own, um, have a virtual board of advisors. And I'm really, really lucky that the people in my phone who I can turn to and say, I need help with this are the people who will give me honest advice. And I wouldn't be able to do it on my own. Now, I also know that there are certain things in my business I can't do all on my own as well. So you start to think about how you create these things in your life and how you create you know friendships that validate who we are we like that how we want to be part of groups why communities are important to us because we're social and mm. if you're building all of this extra stuff in it it just gives you more resiliency right yeah absolutely and resilience i always think about it as if i don't experience failure as a business owner if i don't experience difficulty or loss of business or whatever I don't get the opportunity to build on my resilience some of the strongest people I know in life are people who have gone through tremendous loss and I admire them for it because that it has created in them if you deal with it in a positive way it can truly create so 
much strength. Life is hard. Human existence is, is. difficult. <laughs> Nobody said it was easy. It's the biggest lie that we're told. It's kind of like it's just going to be a dance of roses. It's just easy. Being a human is very difficult. It is very hard and it requires a lot of introspection. It requires a lot of unpicking and it requires a lot of, of curiosity. So thank goodness we have people like you to guide us, Leela. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation and I'm sure that everyone who's listened to it has gotten so many gems out of it but on a more personal perspective I appreciate it I really do so thank you for giving giving of your time <laughs> you're welcome and uh yes we will talk more you and I <laughs> we always do we do I really enjoy our conversations <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you where can we find you oh so I'm at www.angeconsulting.co.uk and I do coaching although I'm not coaching in January I'm taking January off I'm really looking forward to that and I do consultancy I work with organizations mostly Um, I'm doing some consultancy with the NHS at the moment and I'm also on Instagram and the thing that you can get for free is I send out a newsletter and I like to write little articles and yeah if you can sign up to my newsletter you can get those things but yeah I I work with people one-to-one and I work with organizations and that's what I do I don't like to niche so (laughs) I'll do all sorts of stuff and I think that's because I've been a management consultant for 20 years that's what happens (laughs) well listen there's a book that's called uh why the generalist is the winner in a world of specialists so <laughs> I think that's me I am definitely that a could definitely be you yeah absolutely no I highly recommend Leela's newsletter and a really great Instagram feed as well thank you Jess I really hope you've enjoyed this episode you've been listening to unprecedented women with me Jess Audsley if you've been inspired by this conversation I would love to hear from you Please subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Believe it or not, it really does help. Keep in touch on Instagram, my favorite platform, and let me know your thoughts. You can find me at rocksocial underscore. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time for more chats with unprecedented women.